0: Thank you again, everyone, for coming. I want to I, I start by thanking Michael uh, for thanking him for actually letting, us ho- letting me and letting us uh, hold this gathering. Uh, one of Michael's most notable attributes, and it's been mentioned time and time again, is his moderation. And uh, Michael, I know you well enough to know that though a little bit of attention is fine, a, a lot is not. Um, and I, I'm sure this whole event has made you somewhat uncomfortable. But it's actually very important for us to honor you, because in doing so, we learn, and especially the, the young, learn what is honorable. So we do this for you, but you let us do it for us. So thank you. I, um, so I have three things to say. That was the first. Uh, the second is, uh, m- more on a personal note, Uh, Just to let you know, Michael, how much uh, we will miss you and and I will miss you. Um, Everyone here knows about your scholarship and about your devotion to teaching. We've heard a lot about that. Um, Not maybe everyone knows how terrific of a colleague you are. Uh, You're generous with your time. Um, i say my deepest regret uh, all day today was not having spent more time with you. Um, uh, I I hope we'll still have the chance. you open your classes to us. Uh, you open your house to us. Uh, you're wonderful in conversation. You're an institution builder. Uh, I'm here because more than 10 years ago, Michael spent a lot of time writing a National Endowment for the Humanities grant. Uh, I've come to know how much work that is. <laughs> and, and Michael gets nothing for it. Well, he gets me, well, good or bad. <laughs> uh, but I've certainly learned recently how much time it takes to help to build something, and I'm only here to help you do it because you spent that time originally. Uh, that is, in our, little com- in our little world, that is what devotion to the common good looks like. And so I thank you for your building of uh, Notre Dame. Uh, you are leaving this place a much better place than it was when you arrived. Uh, I'm going to miss having you around. Uh, Michael's office was just down the hall from mine, and um, uh, now I saw less of him when they changed the parking, and he had to walk farther. <laughs> <laughs> but when he was around all the time, uh, my favorite interaction was was this, and I and I do not exaggerate. This happened at least twenty times. I would be perplexed on a text or um, how to teach something. I remember not being able to figure out. You know, I've been thinking about this for twenty years. What is it? Or, Book one, chapter two of Aristotle's Politics, The Naturalness of the Polis, I mean, how do I teach that? I don't even know what that means, right? Um, Lincoln's Perpetuation Address, you know, political religion, does he really mean this? Uh, Woodrow Wilson, the Publius on Federalism, and I'd go to Michael and I'd say, how, you know, how do you teach this? Uh, how, do, how do you understand this? And his response was always like, oh, I have this unpublished essay I wrote on this, you should read it. <laughs> I have a whole collection. I have a file called Zuckert unpublished with all these. Those essays are great. And I've learned a lot. I've learned things you haven't learned because of them. So I'm going to miss having you around. I'm going to miss having you down the hall. Um, I've learned a lot just by being next to you, uh, being your colleague, I've learned most most of all, what it means to have a vocation to be a college professor, so thank you. One last, one last note, uh, and this is to you and Catherine. Um, I hope you know this, you should know this. Uh, Notre Dame is your home. It's been your home for a long time, and it remains your home. Uh, While you remain here in South Bend, I hope you'll you'll be a part of our intellectual life. Come to the seminars. Tell me who to invite, as I'm sure you will. (laughs) Teach a class. You could be our most distinguished adjunct. (laughs) You have so much more to offer and more work to do, and I hope you'll do some of that work with us here at Notre Dame. We remain your family, and Notre Dame remains your home. So I hope you'll join me uh, in toasting Michael Sarab. It is uh, a great pleasure uh, to introduce uh, Laura Tidens. Uh, Laura is, uh, you know, uh, believe it or not, the most distinguished member of the Zucker family. <laughs> she's currently president of Scripps College, where she's been since 2016. She holds; uh, she also holds the title there of the W.M. Keck pres- Presidential Chair. Before coming uh, to Scripps, before becoming Scripps's president, she was senior associate dean of academic affairs and faculty member of the Stanford University Graduate School of Business where she oversaw um, Stanford's edu- key educational and administrative functions, including a PhD program, executive education, and their global inno- innovation program. Uh, t- but tonight, uh, President Tedens joins us in a different capacity. She's one of three daughters of Michael and Catherine Zucker, and she's going to offer a few words uh, about her father. Uh, please join me in welcoming Professor Tedens. Thank
1: you. Thank, you. Thank you so much, Phil. Um, about three years ago, I was at an event actually at Scripps with my dad, and he said, we, there was this guy who came up to make remarks, and he didn't bring any pieces of paper with him to the podium, and said he brought an iPad. And my dad said he was really impressed by this, So here I am, still trying to impress you, Dad. I I hope this will do it. Okay. Uh, This is actually that in true Michael Ziegert form, I didn't write these comments soon enough to print them, that's all. (laughs) Okay, so I'm Laura, and I'm Michael and Catherine's middle daughter. That makes me their second born. And I know mostly out there you are political philosophers, and so you may not be up on the psychological findings regarding birth order. (laughs) But I'm a psychologist, and so let me just fill you in. And the long and the short of it is that second-borns are rebels. And the basic idea of this is that second-borns very quickly realize that they're not gonna win at the same game as the first-born. So instead of trying to impress the parents on the things the parents care the most about, which is what the firstborn does, the secondborn goes on her own path, a very different one than the first or than the parents. Now, given Phil's introduction of me, I understand that I may not look like your prototypic rebel, but this is really my role in the family, And if we had longer time tonight, my parents could give you many, many examples of my rebellious behavior. But thankfully for me, we're not here to talk about me. I see tonight as really about celebrating the breadth, depth, and impact of my father's incredible career. And this is a problem for me, the rebel, because I'm really the least equipped of truly anybody in his immediate family to talk about his career. I do not know a single thing about political philosophy. My daughter, Michael's oldest grandchild, who shares his fascination with the political philosophy underlying this country's founding would have been a far better choice and she truly wishes she could be here to share this night with you. Unlike me, she actually would have gone to all the talks today, she would have enjoyed them, and she would now be asking you all questions about what you said. And truly, she is probably the only girl who is a 13-year-old write her, wrote, who wrote her high school application to the essay prompt of who would you like to be for the day, saying that she would like to be Thomas Jefferson, (laughs) contemplating the ideal government for a new country. (laughs) Who would have ever given her that notion? (laughs) Now, another one of the options would have been one of my sisters. And in fact, one of my sisters said that if she spoke, she was going to talk about how political philosophy or particular political philosophers could be evidence in the parenting approach of of Michael Zuckert. And I thought she quite generously offered that I could pick up on this theme. And what I would say to you is that that would have had the benefit that I would have spoken to you for a much shorter period of time than I'm going to, But I couldn't riff on that for even a single second. So, sorry. Okay, so what might I be able to say appropriate to the occasion, not just about him as a father, but really about him as a scholar and teacher? Well, first let me start by saying that my knowledge of him outside of the professional realm is completely generalizable. Because as I'm sure many of you know, this man is exactly the same at home, in the office, in a lecture, in the classroom, walking around campus, on the elliptical machine, wherever he is. He, oh, sorry, he does his thing. He brings his sense of self. How about that? Is that better? Good, OK, good, for me too, OK. <laughs> All right, he brings a sense of self to really everything that he does, whether it's professional, whether it's in his family, or whether it's for fun. And by the way, I think one of the really distinguishing characteristics of him is that you can never really disentangle those things because he doesn't either. Well, many of you may know that my father did most of the cooking in our household growing up. And as a side note, I will say that one of his secret or not so secret sort of points of pride is that now all of his daughters are married to husbands who also do all the cooking in their homes. I'm pretty sure that he sees himself as having raised feminist empowered women one dinner at a time. Anyway, my dad's way of being was even on display when he made meatloaf for dinner. Yeah, meatloaf. He never made it as a loaf. (laughs) Instead, he would mold it into some bizarre shape in honor of the holiday that was coming up, a movie we had just seen, a recent news event a character from a book that he had been reading to us at night. Now, I know many of you probably have not eaten his meatloaf, much less seen the shapes of it, but you probably relate to this example because you've seen that same knack for making connections between the various pieces of life, finding a way to be silly about it, in, other, in your own interactions with him, like those weird prizes he gives out in class, or examples or film clips he'd work into his lectures or writing, or his funny little giggle or that full-throttle laugh at stupid jokes or even at a cartoon in the newspaper. All of us in the room, whether we know each other or not, we know this guy, we know that same guy. And one of the things that makes him so compelling is that he is him everywhere and anywhere. Now, as the rebel, I'll tell you that that guy was really embarrassing sometimes, (laughs) but it's also why it's easy to connect over a love for him. Okay, but what I really want to focus on in my comments is the way that my dad spoiled me. Now, I'm not actually saying that as his daughter exactly because I'm not saying that he didn't have rules because he absolutely did or that he didn't punish us, because he did that too. I was, got grounded more than I think any of my other sisters. Uh, or that he didn't hold us accountable, he did that too. Or that he didn't require that we be responsible, because he did that too. He spoiled me on a much deeper level. He spoiled me about the most fundamental expectations, about the life worth leading, about what a profession is, about what learning is, about the value of ideas, the power of a good argument, the necessity of reasoning, and also about what a father should be, how a husband can be, and what men are really capable of. In all of these realms, he set the standards so high, he made such extreme ideals the norm that some days I feel he set me up for disappointment. And that's what I mean by spoiling. He spoiled my idea of what is possible. I've heard my dad tell a story from Carlton at a graduation event where he told the mother of one of his very best students that year what a great paper this student had written. I think it was on Tocqueville, but I'm not sure. Yeah? Rob, okay. I don't know my political philosophy. I told you that. Okay, the mother was, you know, glad to hear this about her son, but she then said, well, but who's gonna pay my sons have great ideas about Tocqueville? (laughs) My dad's response was delivered in a tone that I'm sure you all know, that sort of innocent kinda, but really all knowing, pretending to take on a sort of puzzled, why might you ask that question, and yet so very clear in his answer. And he said, you don't think about Tocqueville to be paid. You find a way to get paid to have the opportunity to think about Tocqueville. All right, well, my dad obviously did figure out how to be paid for thinking about Tocqueville. (laughs) And a lot of other things. But more importantly, the value of thought is a central theme to the story of his life. And getting there, finding that life, and leading that life does not seem to have been a puzzle for him, or at least he never showed it to be. I think the thing about him is that he truly lives the life he sees worth leading. He values that focus on the importance of ideas and thoughtfulness, while also truly enjoying people, art, invention, and creation. He's one of those few people who lives purely, completely, and vigorously, taking in everything he sees as great, doing it in full. He does what he loves, and he loves what he does, and he shows that to us at every turn. One of the greatest powers, I think, that parents have is that they define your sense of what's normal. And my dad led me to believe that living in that manner that he does is normal. Coming from my parents' home, I thought that all professors had their students over to their houses all the time. I thought that all professors wrote endless comments on papers. I thought all professors read work from their discipline for fun. (laughs) I thought that all academics talked about what they were reading and that all academics wanted to know more and think more even when it was harder to do so. I thought that in academia, but not just in academia, really actually in life, that it was all about playing with ideas all day long and in all contexts. Whether that's about Machiavellian themes under the Tuscan sun, (laughs) naming your cats for characters in Greek tragedies, teaching your daughter calculus, or engaging your five- and seven-year-olds on the meaning of being in nothing. Yes, I did have that conversation with him as a five-year-old in Claremont, California, and I still remember him asking whether nothing could actually be nothing if there we were talking about it, and so it must be something, mustn't it? I thought that's just how life was. Now, to those of you in the room who were Michael's students, either as graduate students or undergraduate students, I see you as a kind of sibling. I believe I share with you a love and appreciation for the very special way in which he has shaped my life, and also that pride and warmth of having been touched and raised by someone of a unique and better character. But if I'm honest, I've also had some sibling jealousy and resentment toward you (laughs) because it is really easy to see how much of his heart and mind you occupy, and it's forever been that way. But our similar experiences with him may have also resulted in some similarities in our journeys. I know I spent many years of my life seeking that same magic that my parents create around them wherever they go whether in Minnesota, Chicago, DC, England, Delaware, South Bend, or now in Phoenix, they create an environment where there is simply no alternative to the relentless pursuit of thinking for the pure joy of it. For me, for some time, I was disappointed that I couldn't ever find that Zuckert alternative universe anywhere else that I went. I kept looking for it. It was how I evaluated every professor, every department, every school, every job, and even friends and possible romantic partners. Just everything. I couldn't understand why that was so not graspable for me when it seemed to come so easily and naturally in every room that my dad entered. My guess is is that there are a number of people in this room who relate to that quest, and they may even blame my dad for generating it, as I sometimes have. But lately, I'm over my disappointment, and I'm over my jealousy, because it finally occurred to me that all that spoiling, all those raising of expectations, all that illustration of an ideal was actually getting me the experience I was seeking. I got to be in their alternative universe. I got to see that it could and does exist, if not everywhere, somewhere. And now I can just call or email, Skype or FaceTime, or go visit and get a fix of it. Lots of people I know don't ever even see it. Not even once. And I know it exists. I've gotten to live it. I can aspire to it. And so I've got a piece of that beautiful alternative universe. And I think that All of you do too and that that's why you're here tonight and that's why even I, knowing nothing about political philosophy, can celebrate his amazing career. Well, that's the natural place to stop, but I have one last thing to say. Last night, my dad said up at this podium that he's very mixed feelings about retirement and whoever it was this afternoon who mentioned eulogies did not help that situation at all. But we all understand why he would have these mixed feelings, especially him. He has an energy, and not just an energy, but a drive and a passion for engaged thinking that really doesn't comport with the way that many of us, and maybe particularly he, thinks about retirement. Now, to be sure, he's not going to spend his retirement golfing, or in a lawn chair, or on a cruise, or even designing new meatloaf shapes though I hope he will make some meatloaf, because beyond being shaped in interesting ways, it also tastes pretty good. Indeed, it's really so him that the only way he would retire is because he had another teaching gig. <laughs> but what I want to say to this group, and really most importantly to you, Dad, is that just like you redefine the good life, the life of the mind, the quest for better thinking for probably all of us here, I'm pretty sure you're going to redefine retirement for yourself and by happy accident for all the rest of us, too. You are going to be that same you in retirement. And that means you are going to keep doing all the great things you do just without all those annoying administrators around. (laughs) Unless you count me. Because I'm an annoying administrator. That's the rebel in me, and I want part of it. I want part of this new alternative universe, the one you will create, the one I know you will woo us all into as you always do. And this time, I promise, I won't see it as being spoiled. I won't see it as a disappointment. I just want a taste of all the great stuff that waits, awaits. So dad, congratulations on the enormous impact that you've had. Best wishes for the many next chapters you will write, and thank you.